Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I often wondered if others felt the same way. Like a hook had been placed somewhere near the middle of my ribcage, tied to a thin string and attached to some far off place. Walking around, sometimes that string would tighten, pull, and tear at my insides. There's a word for that feeling, and it's common for people like me. It's nostalgia. But can you feel nostalgia for a place and time you've never seen? Never been? That's what this podcast is about. The hidden afterlife of war. It's about coming to terms with the things, places, people that get lost when your world turns upside down. Maybe you can't go back there. Not now. Maybe you do go back. And you find everything and everyone to be different somehow. This is a podcast that remembers those things, times, and places. It's a memorial for those things that were, but it also asks how those memories shape our present lives. I'm Serado, and you're listening to On Things We Left Behind. I'm a Somali-Canadian, and me and my sister Surer are trying to piece together unfinished stories of those that have had their lives transformed by war. The last flight was on January 1st, 1991. I was a captain, I was flying in domestic flights, and I was the last pilot who officially flew a plane carrying passengers for hire and compensation from Mogadishu. The first episode is a personal one. My sister will be joining me to speak to our father, who we call Abo. It's a story that we've heard in parts throughout our lives, a story of a Somali Airlines pilot who lost his dream of flying. This is a place to put the things we left behind. As I'm speaking to my father, he's sitting on the rooftop of our family home in Muktisho, Somalia. Amidst the bustling sounds of an ever-busy city, the rooftop is his sanctuary, a place of peace and reflection in a city turned upside down. Every day, he carves out just enough time to watch the view of his hometown. This little part of space does not belong to anyone else. This is his Muktisho. And this is the Muqtisho we want to talk to him about today. Let me make it very short here. There is not a dull moment in Mogadishu. There's never a dull moment. Yes. 
It's always something, some people might call it exciting, but it, there's something strange, something crazy, something sad happening in Mogadishu. On his left, on the rooftop, there are spiraling metal gates patrolled by armed security, leading people in and out of the compound. Here and there, guards let off a sharp whistle, almost like a song, to acknowledge the new arrivals. In front of him, not too far, extends the shore of the beach. But right in front of the ocean, just a few houses away from where he stands on this rooftop, this is the real view for Abel. This is the thing he came to see. It's what leaves him on the rooftop for hours to witness where it all began and where it all ended. The Aden Abdullah Airport, just a short walk from Abu's home, sits directly in front of that rooftop. Perched in his front row seat, the only thing that will stifle his concentration is the call to prayer flooding from the speakers of the neighborhood mosques and occasionally the call to dinner. Mogadishu didn't always look like this. The rubble that now lines the streets used to be my parents' favorite cinemas, hangout spots, discos. These neighborhoods, they were their schools, the places where all their firsts happened. And this is where Abba met his first love, his love of planes. Every Friday morning at 6 o'clock, I would be there, ready to watch the planes land. Someone who doesn't know him could think, How many times can someone watch a plane take off before it loses its novelty? But I guess that's the thing. If you love flying the way my dad does, you always find time to indulge in your admiration, especially when the thing you love is gone. I want to tell you where it all started, but it's hard to pick an exact time. I could start by explaining his early dream of becoming a pilot or by telling you about his days as the captain of Somali Airlines, back when it existed. I could also begin by telling you about the war, the one that took it all away. But maybe I'll let him tell you himself. Planes were not many in the early 60s, especially in Africa. And I was impressed about my first sight of a plane flying above me. Later, I don't know, in the company of somebody else, I don't know who, we went to the military aviation, and I found planes sitting there. And that was the moment that stuck me, and I, I connected the planes flying on top of my head, and the planes sitting there. And there were some people, people were calling pilots in the streets, and uh, they were flying those planes. And that's how it got to me, into you know living that life, thinking about flying planes. How did you go from the hill watching the planes to actually becoming a pilot? What were those steps? I heard that people were talking about there was this opportunity for kids to go to Lufthansa flying school because the Somali Airlines was giving out a national exam with a board coming over and trying to train these kids and uh, for Somali Airlines to be a future pilot. I took my, all my savings and then I flew back to Mogadishu. I enrolled myself in the exam and everything else, and luckily I got through. They selected 18 pilots, and I was one of them. Before he knew it, all of his dreams were coming true. Picture this. I am young. I'm 
22, 23 years of age. I have my whole world in front of me. I'm well paid. I am ahead with my life. Everything that I wanted to have from the age of six was just sitting in front of me just to be taken. There was just one thing missing. Just one thing that would make his whole life fall right into place. A couple years later, when he was 27, he met our mom, Hoya. As he puts it. That empty spot got filled. And things were given even better. Your mom was graduating then from the University of Florence. Things were working all right for everybody until one day the whole world collapsed ahead of us. In January of 1991, the state collapsed and civil war broke out in the country's capital. But I'll give you a little backstory. From 1969, the country was ruled by a one-party ruler named Siad Bare. Towards the end of the 1980s, he began to lose his grip on power in the country. Clan-based rebel militias were formed against his rule in the north, south, and center of the country. By January 26, 1991, one of these militias had fought their way to Muqtisho and overpowered the Somali National Army. That night, Siad Bada stole away from the city under the cover of night. From the next morning, the Somali state once called the Lucky Daughter of Africa had collapsed. And Muqtisho, known as the Pearl of the Indian Ocean, became the battleground for warlords and their militias to fight for control over what remained of the country. Making space for this nostalgia, telling these stories, helps us to understand our parents and connect to our culture in a different way. As my sister and I watched our parents pick up the pieces, we adopted a lot of grand narratives, romantic imaginings of some other home that was better than this place, until it wasn't. We were shaped by the following truths. One, we are from somewhere that we no longer live. And two, my parents did things that they can no longer do. As children, my sister and I didn't have the language to comprehend the intricacies of this loss but it still felt tangible and shaped how we came to understand our roles as daughters in Canada. We had an awareness that everything we had was gained through immense sacrifice and a duty, a pressure, to make it all worth it. Our parents thought that the violence would end in a few months. However, it didn't end like this. The next thing Abu knew, he was living in a new country governed by different rules. A country he didn't, or maybe wouldn't, recognize. The very first day that the war started, basically, I was at the airport in Mogadishu. I landed at 8 o'clock in Mogadishu from flight uh, from Rome. I went there for a visit to my wife, your mother. I went there for a week, then I came back. 8 o'clock in the morning, Mogadishu time. All of a sudden, there was this parodic firing starting around me. And I decided, OK, it wasn't a safe place to be. And I ran away, and I went back home. There was a war zone before I knew, in front of my eyes. I went back to my neighborhood in my house, and uh, things got gradually worse and worse and worse. Can you tell me about your last memories flying in Somalia? The last flight was on January 1st, 1991. I was a captain. I was flying on domestic flights, and I was the last pilot who officially flew a plane carrying passengers for hire and compensation from Mogadishu to Galkayo and back to Mogadishu. So what happens when you lose your country, your home, and your profession, all in a matter of a few days? 
Things were going from bad to worse in Muqtisho. The city was now in all-out warfare, so it was time to make a decision. It was time to leave. Maybe not forever, but for now. I decided, you know, to rent a boat with some friends and some people unknown to me. Three of us with another 16 people. And we jumped in this little boat. We paid him a huge amount of money. And we were en route, <laughs> which even though we were close to the border, it took us two nights and the third night we were there in Mombasa in a refugee camp. That was when the realization came in and everything sank in front of me and my hopes and dreams and everything else was going, you know, deep down. Becoming a refugee is not like getting a new identity. It's a legal category to describe people who have lost one. There are many definitions of what a refugee is. But to hear it described by someone who experienced it, it feels less about the law and more like being erased. That's when I decided, okay, I'm going to start a new life somewhere else. If I'm no longer welcome in the place I was born, I might as well find another destination and call it home. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. After a year and a half in limbo, Abba finally reunited with Hoya, our mom, in Italy. And a year after that, Surer was born. It was there that they made a critical decision to pack up once again and find a place where they could raise our family. Our refugee application to Canada was accepted, which was bittersweet for Abel. My parents spent a lot of their 20s in Europe, and it was familiar to them. But Canada felt less certain, and one of the hardest days of adjustment for Abel was the very first day they landed in the airport, their first days as refugees in Canada. And that was even the realization that I was nobody. That's when I realized, because that moment we were trying to process, the immigration was trying to process our paperwork. And we still had that passport with us, the Somali passport. And there were three kids, uh, young guys, and there was a supervisor. After having finished all the questions and everything else, he decided, okay, to put the stamp admitted on my passport. There was a passport that I had for a long time, and all the pages were full, and he was struggling to find a small spot to, you know, to stamp the, the thing. At a glance, she took a glance at him, and she realized that he was trying to find the stamp and trying to put the stamp admitted in my passport. She started yelling from there, and she called out to him to stop. And he stopped, and he was looking at her like, why are you stopping me, you know? And she said, we don't recognize his passport. 
don't put accepted on their passport. It was really like Mike Tyson has punched me in the, in the guts. I was hit so hard because this passport was everything I'd had that gave me that identity. Hearing Abba talk about experiencing these things feels surreal. I guess everyone feels weird that their parents lived full lives before them. But this feels a little different. Like you appeared in the aftermath of some grand disaster. And you know something happened, but you can't place your finger on what exactly. There you are at the airport and you're no longer being recognized. How soon did you start to say, I want to be a pilot here too? Like, did you try and be a pilot in Canada? What was that process like for you? After a week, I met my counselor and I told her about the credentials and everything. And uh, I, th- I wanted to tell her that I wanted to be a pilot back again. And she looked at me in the eyes and said, okay, um, you don't have money. First, you have to find a job first. Find a job, then worry about those things later. Easter Day, 1995. A couple of months before I was born, he began working at the Safeway supermarket. For Abo, home was in the air. Getting that back became his greatest hope and greatest disappointment. But as time went on, it seemed like every route he took was a dead end. Time was ticking. He was almost 40. He hadn't flown a plane in years. And all of these factors combined made the chances that Abba would fly again slimmer and slimmer with every passing day. Here was the plan. Step one, get funding for flying school. Step two, ace a flying test and three written exams. Step three, apply for a pilot's license and find work. But he couldn't seem to get past the first step, getting the money to do all of this. He didn't qualify for loans. He didn't have any credit or assets because he was a newcomer, and every penny earned needed to be put towards the family or sent back home. I applied everywhere. I applied for a student loan at the bank. I started for, uh, and I was overqualified. I was there, and I was overqualified with everything. Overqualified was a word he heard often. It was the reason he had two resumes, one for the job he wanted and one for the odd jobs. The second resume made him seem like he wouldn't quit the moment he found a better opportunity. But then it happened. Abba finally got his lucky break. He made a plea to one of his counselors to help him get into school. And that counselor passed him on to another counselor, who also happened to be a pilot. And after losing shifts at the supermarket, he became eligible for unemployment insurance and a grant of up to $30,000, which could be used to get the credits he needed. How long did you have to work at the supermarket before this all turned around? It took me about two and a half years to crack that little window and to get to flying school. By spring of 1998, he was on to step three of his grand plan. He got the funding for the courses and performed well on the tests. Now was the pilot's license, a step he thought would be simple, until his experience began to be questioned. At first, you have to do all the requirements and then put the application to the office. I went through the school, I went to the exams and everything else. Everything was fine until I presented all my credentials to the civil aviation inspector there. And he looks at me and he looks at the logbooks and everything that I had handy. And I kept them so dearly, protected them with my life all the time. 
he looked at me and he said, okay, we're going to call you back. It took him about a week to reach me back. And he said, unfortunately, we cannot accept your application because we need further clarifications. We need somebody from Somalia, Somalia Airlines and the government of Somalia, the Ministry of Transportation of Somalia, to certify these documents. And uh, I tried to explain him the status of the country. And he said, there's nothing I can do about it. Tough luck. At this point, roadblocks emerging when he least expected it became the norm for Abel. One day, he's overqualified. The next day, he isn't qualified at all. Part of getting a pilot's license is in the flight log, the way a pilot proves they have enough experience in the air to fly commercially. Remember, Abel was a captain for Somali Airlines, and he's far over the threshold of hours needed to qualify for a pilot's license. But who would you call to certify this? There's an ongoing civil war in Muqtisho. The center of the city has been reduced to rubble because of the hostilities. There's no number, no office you can call to corroborate your story. Abba was the last person to fly an official Somali Airlines flight. So he makes another plan, a painful one. This time, he must prove that his country has been destroyed. Abba heads over to the Vancouver Public Library. He's on the hunt for resources. He needs to show that there is no institution standing in his Somalia that could provide the kind of verification that he's being asked for. By the time that he returns to the aviation officer, he's compiled stacks of documents, news reports, and photocopies that he even paid to get certified. Documents to prove everything that he has lost. Two months pass, and he returns to the office again and again, but he's met with an agonizing silence. Finally, he tells the officer to just end his misery. Yes or no. His case was escalated to the head office because no one with authority knew how to proceed. He was an anomaly. Everything depended on his ability to convince a group of people that knew nothing about his country that he had once worked for an airline that no longer existed in a country that no longer existed. It was an act of faith. Finally, he got the call. Good news. Come pick up your license. By the fall of 1998, Abel was a licensed pilot, a citizen of Canada, and on the hunt for his dream job. I met this gentleman over and over. We gradually became friends, actually, by talking about aviation all the time. And I knew he was a chief pilot in one of the charter planes somewhere. He was flying jets. He promised me over and over that I would be the first one hired if I ever get qualified to get my license. Eventually, one of these days, I found my Canadian pilot's license, and I knocked on his door, and he looked at me, and he goes, congratulations, and it took you so long to call me and come over. He said, let me arrange an, an interview for you with the chief pilot. The chief pilot was a man named Christian. Abu was eager. He even bought a new suit. The job search was so tumultuous. This was pre-LinkedIn. He would go to Barnes & Noble's, read aviation magazines, and write down addresses on notepads so he could mail out his resume. So how did his first interview go? I went there, and uh, I went to the secretary, and she said, yeah, we are expecting you. So she said, OK, have a seat there. And I sat there, and she tried to preach this gentleman, who was not available at his office. It was lunchtime, and he was coming down, actually. And I saw him sitting there. Eventually, he saw me as well, because I was the one who had an appointment with him. 
And the secretary calls me back and she said, unfortunately, Mr. Christian is no longer there. And she was crying and shaking. At that moment, I realized that Christian might have seen me from there and he wanted to see how I looked like first. The interview never happened. The piloting community in Western Canada during those days was something of an old boys club, an old white boys club. It's one thing to get the license, a whole other thing to actually get the job. He left quietly, got into his car, and reflected. I sat there and I realized things were not as rosy as they were looking in the first place. I was rejected in the worst possible way, basically. Uh, somebody calls you for an interview, and then he looks how he, he looks at you, and he realizes how you look like, and he decided not to talk to you. After a series of almosts, close calls, and maybe this times, a job offer appeared. But this time, it was for my mom, the architect who similarly had her career put on hold for almost a decade. But realizing that things were not working the way it should be in Canada, we decided to try our luck in the United States. Eventually, we ended up in Ohio, and I was sitting at home taking care of the girls. So just to fill up my time, I was applying for everywhere. Eventually, there was a big booming, economic booming, and they needed pilots everywhere. In Canada, he could legally work, but there were limited opportunities. In the U.S., there were an abundance of opportunities, but he wasn't eligible to work. Abba found several employers interested in hiring him and got one to write an official letter stating his interest. He decided he was going to try to change his legal status. I was stupid enough to go to the border. I went to first immigration officer and uh, he was standing there. You know, the guy was on break, actually. And I explained to him about my situation. He said, OK, unfortunately, I cannot talk to you unless you cross the border first and come back with this letter. That's what the law says. So uh, he was setting me up to deport me. <laughs> so I crossed the border, and then I, I swung around, and I came back to the United States again. And here he was waiting for me, specifically. He looked at my papers and everything else, and he said, OK, um, who told you to apply for a job? You're not eligible to apply for a job here. And he took off everything. He took my passport. He took weird of the visa I had on it. And basically, he deported me. And just like that, he was separated from us. At the time, I struggled to understand why he was gone. Surat and I never blamed him. We always knew it was this big reason that never made sense to us. But that didn't change the fact that he missed things. Report cards, birthdays, recitals. In that period of time when he was gone, he would make a lot of effort to come and visit us. And in that time, in that week, we would cram through everything he'd missed. It wasn't until I got older, until I was able to sit with my dad and ask him what happened, made me understand that he was more than just Abo. He was a person in an immigration system, a system that rarely makes exceptions. He spent the next few years in London, Ontario, Canada, making ends meet. Abba, what was the moment that you decided to just stop trying, to just accept that it wasn't going to happen, and what was that like for you? One day I was contemplating and I decided, okay, things are not working well. It's not longer meant to be. And I looked at my face in the mirror and I decided, okay, 
I'm going to dump everything away into garbage. Because I realized it's not going to happen at all. And it took me 11 long years to realize that. I decided, okay, I was 42 years of age, and I had to find a job. I looked around, and I said, okay, there's an opportunity here. Drive a limo. Buy your own business. Do it yourself. That's why I divert my attention to driving limos. I didn't have a profession. I lost my profession. But the most amazing thing is that I was waking up every day hating what I was doing. Literally hating. Even though I was trying to adjust myself and smile about it, part of me was missing. I knew it was missing, and I was flying away, getting smaller and smaller and smaller every day. That was the thing that I had to do in order to survive. He drove a limo for over a decade, but Abba was anything but defeated. He did all those things that middle-aged family men do. He put down a deposit on a cozy house. He bought cat food for Simba. He sent us through middle school, then high school, then university and beyond. He bought pizza almost every Friday. He built a new life, one that didn't include the air. After a decade, it all seemed like a very distant memory of a life that wasn't quite his anymore. The last time Abba flew a plane as an airline pilot was January 1st, 1991, the year the Civil War broke out in Somalia. But that's not to say that things always stay the same. A few years ago, the city of Mogadishu became relatively safe for many in the diaspora to consider heading back. The call of home was powerful enough for my parents to overlook the periodic explosions in the capital. The call of home of community, culture, language, took them both back to a place where it all started. Currently, Abba's rebuilding. He's working to bring back Somali Airlines. On his free time, he watches the planes take off and land at the airport that used to feel like home. This little part of space does not belong to anyone else. This is his Mokdisho. What I learned was what I always told you. Look forward. Look for the future. The sky is the limit. Never, never stop dreaming. Even though I was going against the, the headwinds and everything, against everything else, I never, never for a minute stopped dreaming. Never. Never stop dreaming for a better life. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com. 
the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.